he came in in that boot camp though and he was like mm-hmm. why is it just the black kids that are in here like what's going on and I looked at him and I was like I actually don't know um but I noticed it too and we'll work together on this and there was something for him about the fact that I acknowledged what he saw and that I didn't dismiss it Welcome to Buy Little. We're your hosts, Tamara and Courtney. We're on a mission to empower people like you. Like us. To create a future where everyone can thrive. Before we hear from the change agents on today's episode, we want to thank you for your willingness to take action. Confronting the dark, heartbreaking sides of reality takes courage, and we want to celebrate that. The landscape of truth is rugged, but it's the only place we'll find better. I'm a first generation American. My family's from Haiti. Mine too. Really? That's awesome. Yay, there's another Haitian in the mix. That's Marsha Davis. She's an educator, coach, and founder and CEO of Davis Squared Consulting, a firm we'll talk more about later. Marsha's parents were big on the importance and value of education. Uh, yeah, I, the big thing that my parents told us growing up was that school is, was our only job. Like pretty much that is what you had to be good at. And it opened up a lot of doors for us. There were um, so many opportunities that came through for my brother and I that would not have been available for us if education was not, you know, if if access to education was not there. And I ended up going to Harvard. My brother went to Princeton and like growing up in poverty and then going into those realms, um, we just saw the power of education opening doors for us. I inherited the idea that education was gonna be the great equalizer. And then I got to college and realized uh, that that wasn't everyone's experience. There are so many variables that impact students' learning experiences, both within school and outside of it. And the differences in education quality is something that also bugged Dr. Donnie Hale when he was growing up. Dr. Hale, who also goes by Donnie, is now the Southern Regional Deputy Director for the Coalition for Community Schools. That's a national organization dedicated to promoting education equity through the community school strategy. What's that? We'll get there. First, here's why Donnie decided to devote his career to improving our country's education system. So education is is really personal to me. And it really starts with uh, my love of family, community, and and my hometown. I'm from Stockton, California. And and so in in Stockton um, is where my parents still live, my siblings still live and their teachers and social workers. But we grew up in a community where people were involved and connected. People poured into our lives. We went to church every Sunday. We were really involved and active. But the thing that I recognized and, and I realized is that education wasn't accessible to everybody. Everyone didn't have a high quality opportunity and sometimes kids were left out. And so as a young person, I used to ask the question of why are some kids making it and other kids you know, are not? And so those questions is what led me to become an elementary teacher Marsha began her career as an educator, too. I majored in biology, love science, a huge science geek. And, and I thought, OK, my way of giving back to the world is to be a science teacher and help give folks the things that I had growing up. One of the things that I realized as an educator, you know, I, I went through a master's program, got my master's in science education, was ready to, like, save every black child <laughs> by being like a black woman in the classroom who loves science and just be like, look, I exist. Come on, guys. Don't you want to do the same thing? Marsha was an exceptional teacher. 
if you had looked in my classroom, my success rates were better than others. Um, some other teachers are like white led, you know, white led classrooms, but the gap was still there, right? So there's still a noticeable gap. It's a reduced gap, but it's still noticeable. So what's fascinating, I think, is that other professionals are looking in my classroom and they're just like, oh yeah, your class is great. Like black kids are engaged here. Like if you took a picture of my classroom, it would be like one of those like poster child's classrooms, right? <laughs> Where you could just be like, look at all these black and brown kids. They love science and they have a great black teacher. We did it. Snap snaps. And yet what I did see is I used to run these student boot camps <laughs> to help kids get ready for the, the standardized exams at the end of the year. If they had been struggling all year, or they needed some extra support. It was, you know, I was available after school, um, just made sure folks came through at that last period and we would just drill really and get, get them ready. And um, I opened the door for that class uh, one year and streaming in came all these black kids. So it was like this visual representation for me of what was happening in my classroom and in other ninth grade classrooms. Because when I opened the door, the white kids weren't online to be in the boot camp. It was all the black kids. And it made me think to myself, like, even though I had been getting all these accolades, uh, like what is happening here? That it's only one demographic that actually is needing to come in for this extra boot camp work. And I think because I'm, you know, I, I was raised in poverty and because I'm um, identify as black as well. I think the normal answers that people give are like, well, they're, you know, they're poor. Maybe their parents aren't supporting them. But I think because I, because I knew my students, because I also knew that it's not as though living in poverty means that you cannot be engaged in your child's education. I knew a lot of these parents, especially because I was teaching in a charter school. Yeah, they were poor, but they were definitely cared about their kids' education enough to kind of get them into this lottery system. So I knew that it wasn't just them, right? Like I couldn't just blame them for it. One of my kids said something about it. And he was a kid that, you know, had been struggling in class for a long time. Like it, he, the whole year was not trying to be engaged. He cared about anything but science. He came in in that boot camp though. And he was like, why is it just the black kids that are in here? Like what's going on? And I looked at him and I was like, I actually don't know. Um, but I noticed it too. And we'll work together on this. And there was something for him about the fact that I acknowledged what he saw and that I didn't dismiss it. Um, and, and that I was acknowledging something that he had probably been noticing about school for some time. He turned out to be the most engaged kid in that boot camp. <laughs> um, he was like, okay, well, you know, Ms. Davis seems to get it, right? Like that there's some weird thing and the black kids are all here, but she also was not blaming me for it. Um, and she let me like speak this truth. Like there was something for him about the fact that I let him, you know, speak the truth and that I acknowledged it and didn't push it back that allowed him to be better engaged as a kid and that as a student. And he you know, passed the flying colors in that standardized exam. But I, and that was the point where I realized, oh, not acknowledging what our kids see every day around race and ethnicity and how people are treated and, you know, which rooms have all the white kids and which rooms have all the black kids. And that the fact that I hadn't been educated in a way to see that was actually detrimental to him and detrimental to what I wanted him to learn. Like essentially, if I want him to do well in science, if I want my black kids to do well in science, I need to really understand um, more than just a surface level what is really happening here in terms of systemic oppression to be able to support them and stand alongside them. I started to realize, like I looked at my my numbers and um, you know specifically like the the pass rates for the standardized exams through my classroom, and I eventually became an administrator so I could have access to that data for other educators and when i looked the you know the achievement gap is was was present for my classroom and for my teachers that i was supervising just like it was uh present for for classrooms with a white teacher 
What's the achievement gap? So the achievement gap is, is um, you know, a term that's being used to describe the ways in which that black and brown students have consistently, um, this is the way that I guess mainstream would say that black and brown students have consistently underperformed academically. And we've been calling it the achievement gap. Um, those of us who understand that part of the reason black and brown kids seem to be underperforming pretty regularly is, is actually not their fault. <laughs> it has a lot to do with the system that they're being educated in. And so my colleagues and I start to call it, have been calling it the opportunity gap. It's not so much that our kids are not achieving, it's that they're not having the opportunity and the same access to the supports that you need to, to do well academically. And um, and so when I started looking at that data in my classroom uh, and looking at not just like academic pass rates, but also who was getting disciplined more, who was going, who was being suspended more, um, even in my classroom, uh, black boys were being disciplined at higher rates than than white boys. And, and I'm saying it like a passive tense. The reality is I was disciplining uh, the black boys harder than I was the other kids. And even though my intention was coming from a place of love, I'm like, okay, here I am with a black teacher. I need to prepare you for the world that is outside, right? And like by preparing you for the world that is outside, I would be like a stickler around like, here are the norms. You really need to make sure you attend to them. But even I was being biased in how I was applying those norms by by punishing them harder than you know than than the white kids in my classroom was uh without intending it helping to lead them down that school to prison pipeline that we know exists so my dreams was that i was going to be leading uh helping kids to kind of achieve their own version of like freedom and liberation in their own lives by helping them to be you know great critical thinkers and and succeed in school and then here i was realizing like wait so even me, right, with someone who has some awareness of what school can do to kids of color, even um, even someone like me with the training that I've received and reproducing all of these, quite frankly, like white supremacist outcomes. And I really had to look deep into what was going on in my classroom, in my education, in these, um, you know, these these evidence-based best practices that they taught us to use as teachers, that here I am as a teacher using them and realizing that they're actually just replicating a lot of the, the damage that we know happens to kids of colors in schools. And so you get into these systems and you come in as an educator wanting to do great things and you find yourself just reproducing a, a lot of the harms that you hoped that you were there to solve. The thing about social systems is that they're so pervasive and deeply ingrained it can be hard to recognize all the ways that they impact our behavior. That's why we believe reflection and self-education are so important. Yeah, Marsha's story is a clear example. She could have just continued doing what she was doing, but instead she reflected on some of her observations about student performance. Rather than making up stories to justify trends or writing them off, Marsha decided to investigate which is a really brave and frankly kick-ass thing to do. And so I really needed to take a step back and, and, and ask myself, where is this coming from? And that took me down this like really deep, um, like I ended up in this rabbit hole of like researching and pulling it back. Like, how do you actually help support black and brown kids in schools? And um, kind of came to a body of research called critical pedagogy that really helped me to understand what was happening in my classroom and helps me to understand how to make things more equitable. And that's, that is actually kind of my desire to understand that framework and to help others understand that framework was in part how Davis Squared Consulting was born. Tell us more about Davis Squared Consulting. 
We really just help uh, mission-driven organizations like nonprofits and schools and philanthropic organizations, help them kind of just implement their social justice values. These values revolve around diversity, inclusion, and equity. In schools, diversity means acknowledging the inherent value of bringing people together who have different identities, perspectives, values, experiences, and expertise. Inclusion means fostering a sense of belonging by centering, valuing, and amplifying the full scope of human diversity throughout schools. For us, what an equitable classroom is means that each student that's coming into the classroom has the tools they need to achieve in, at their academic level, right? And what we know is that what each child needs in order to learn is completely different due to a wide range of factors. The reason we call it equity versus equality is what it means for everyone to get the, what they need is not necessarily going to look the same for each person. Um, I think we often think a lot about fairness and um, in our culture, try to talk about fairness and equality and think that what it means for every child to succeed means that each child is getting the same, um, the same tools, right? Like if we give every child when they come in a pencil and a set of crayons and a notebook, um, that we're giving them all the, the, the same tools. And that means that they have, uh, that we've done what we needed to do to make the place um, accessible and, and, and equitable, but that's not equity. That's, a, that's equality, right? Which, you know, there are some benefits to that, but we've learned over time, both as we understand systemic racism a little bit more, but also as we understand just kids and people a little bit more is that everyone does not, um, that folks need different things in order to succeed and, and to be, uh, their best selves. And all we're really advocating for through Davis Square Consulting is that each child is given what they need, specifically around like the culturally relevant supports that they need um, in order to, to be successful. Let people have a shared understanding, a language and analysis to help them understand the systemic oppressions in their world so that they can incorporate that into their work. Uh, because most of us are not getting education about that in our, in our, you know, master's degree programs, right? Like they're, they're telling us how to teach, but they're not telling us how to teach in a way that doesn't replicate a lot of the systemic injustice that we've seen our entire lives. And so when we come to our consulting, our hope is uh, to help folks to understand what role education plays in the larger like white supremacist systems and maintaining them. And also the role that you can take as an educational institution to go against that and to push against that status quo. Changing the status quo in our education system also became a mission of Donnie's. It led me to, to sort of master's and a PhD in education. It really led me to really look at how do we create new partnerships in education to make sure that we're creating access and opportunity for everyone. First, you know, when we talk about this idea of, of equity, is that it has become such a word that oftentimes we just don't have an understanding. And so even more with equality, we think about really creating this opportunity where everyone has you know, equal access and equal opportunity when the reality is that, are we creating fairness? And then at the same point, when we think about equity, I think the idea of how do we practice equity? Like, not, let's not just talk about it. Let's not just pursue and create diversity programs. But how do we really practice equity by developing relationships in the community? Now, when I think about distribution of resources, is oftentimes, you know, we allow people that are not sometimes connected to our community to make decisions for our community. And the reality is, we have to make sure we have voice from the community, from schools, from parents, from teachers, but we really need to have voices from all people, but we have to create really relationships where we determine what's gonna work for us all and how do we create structures and systems in order to improve practice. That 
is an important question. It's one thing for a school to say it's devoted to helping every student succeed. And it's a whole nother thing to actually follow through on that promise. It used to be that we would just do like, uh, like standalone DEI trainings. And, and you know, the, the data doesn't show that that is actually all that effectual in terms of changing the culture of an organization or changing the outcomes for students. Um, and so while we will do a one-off training, usually we try to engage clients in our more long-term transformative arc. Our hope is uh, to help folks to understand the what, what, edu- what role education plays and the larger work of, of white supremacy system, like white supremacist systems and maintaining them. And also the role that you can take as an educational institution to go against that and to push against that status quo. Um, so if schools come to us or organizations come to us and they are ready to have that conversation, those are the clients that we tend to engage with best. We are always about meeting clients where they're at, but at the very least they have to be open to an exploration of those concepts. Um, And then if they are, then our work usually starts with something we call an equity audit. And that's where we review all of their internal like policies. We can focus on HR policies or student policies, depending on like what the the school really feels like they want to dive into. But then we look into, you know, how do you do your hiring? How do you grade your kids? And then we look at their quantitative data as well. Um, How many of your kids are in out of school suspension? And we disaggregate all of that data by race so we can see if there are any specific racial or ethnic groups that are being impacted more than others. Um, and then we give um, you, you know, our, our clients then kind of a summary of like, where are you at in your equity journey? Here's what you're doing well, and here are some you know, next steps that you can take. And the audits are usually pretty helpful because I find that when clients come to us and they're like, we really wanna make ourselves more equitable, there's so much that you can address that people get overwhelmed and there's almost a sense of like analysis paralysis. Um, and the, what we do with their racial equity audits is we don't give folks like, here is a list of every possible thing that is wrong with your organization. We say like, here are the three or four things that you need to focus on to help you get to the next stage. So it's really a process of helping folks to not just know what's going on with their institution, but to get a clear sense of where should they be focusing their efforts if they, if they want to, to make any improvements and helps them to kind of, uh, weed out some of the other projects that might be useful, but maybe not at this current time. This reminds me of something I learned while kayaking. When you're in white water and you're about to hit a boulder, the best thing to do is lean into it. Lean into the boulder? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, but if you tip your kayak away from it, your boat's edge will get caught in the water's current, which means you'll not only smash into the rock, but you'll also do so while flipping over, which isn't great. Instead, if you tip your kayak towards the thing you're about to hit, you'll still hit it, but you'll be able to stay upright. And if you're upright, there's a whole lot more you can do to get yourself into a better position. Okay, okay, I like it. When you've got a problem, like the systems at your school are holding some of your students back. Or you're hurtling towards a rock and a river face that problem head on. That's the only way you can start to solve it. So, you know, again, having background as a student, as an elementary teacher, as a professor, as a teacher educator, one thing that I've come to learn through my experiences is you have to really um, congregate local community people from a local level, from a community level. And, and you know, from, from a student having a voice to a parent having a voice, you got to get people talking, talking about what's important to them. 
talking about really what would they like to see for the quality of education in their community. And, and so it's not this big idea of me using language that, that people can't understand, but it's about using you know, relevant language to hear what are your desires? What, what are your hopes and aspirations for your children? What can we do better together? And, and so what I recognize about our body of work is how do you create a vehicle where people are, are gonna come together and talk about things that are important to them and then how do you create partnerships in order to facilitate that process in order to help people meet their needs and at the same time help them to contribute to their desires. Creating space for people to talk about the issues at a school. Then installing systems that enable those same people to collaborate to solve them. Every racial equity audit also includes interviews of parents and students if the students are old enough. Um, and can I actually describe their experience? Then we'll in interview students whenever possible, interview parents. Um, and that's their way of actually bringing in their um, their insights into the racial equity audit process and their voice so, so that we can get a sense of what is what do the policies look like from their end? How do, how do they feel from their end? And we're usually asking questions like, do you does your child feel a sense of belonging here? When you walk into the classroom, do you feel like your culture is understood? Do you feel like your perspective is understood? Um, if you need additional, um, or, or like, what are some of the messages you've received about race and ethnicity? Um, and that always un unfolds, like unearths a lot of things, right? Because schools think that they're saying one thing to their, to their, to their um, parents and, and, and students. And then it's always fascinating to hear like what's actually landing for them and what they're actually learning from the, from that process. And so that, that um, like, we love to bring in those voices whenever possible, because that's really the heart of what this work is all about. Um, you know, I want to support teachers and administrators in doing good, um, equitable work because it creates a better environment for those those parents and families to learn. Um, and so we bring in those voices in that in that way. And then if a, a, we always offer the opportunity whenever we create a racial equity audit to the school for us to come in and present the results of the audit to their community. Um, and so we we could support the client in doing that um and and guiding them in like how to how to present those results um and so it but again that that all you know is up to the client about whether or not that feels right to them and how how their system works and also based on what shows up in the audit how much of that do they really you know how how do they want to best present that information um and we always invite them you know to to bring in their their families and and parents wherever possible to ensure that they also are hearing like, what did the school learn? What are the school's next steps, et cetera? Um, and of course, but you know, it's always up to the client if they decide to do that, but that's definitely something we always encourage because it's buy-in is critical. Um, and sometimes it'll be hard, especially if you're a school who's starting to address this DEIB work in this day and age, um, it's, it's really hard to present that to parents and know how to deal with some of the pushback that occurs. And so our team can help and support either by doing it for the school, giving you talking points to help you kind of navigate those conversations with your, your parents and families. So Marsha and her team collect the data. Then they analyze it. They present key findings to all stakeholders involved. And they outline some suggestions for next steps. What happens after that? How do they help ensure schools are able to take all those steps? We asked Marsha to give us an example of what this process looked like for one of her previous clients. 
And so part of the work that Davis Squared engaged with them in was taking all of that information, all of that learning and helping them to design like a, a cohesive system for keeping the work moving over time. Right. And so they, by the time they were done with us, like they had a framework were on like, how do we make decisions on, you know, DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. Um, who, who's the one who's pushing that work? How do we ensure that all staff get engaged? What are our, um, like, when does this decision become a board level decision versus an, you know, our equity, um, committee decision, right? And so what they had by the end of our work together was an infrastructure for, for keeping the work moving, right? So they knew like, okay, if a new staff member comes in, this is where they come in into the equity work. Here are our equity work groups. Here's how they're moving the work forward. Um, the equity work group is now led by a specific staff member. That staff member now is, gets extra compensation to be leading this work group so that they ended up having like this internal equity structure that now could hold whatever equity work they wanted to do years down the line. A lot of parents are giving up on public schools because of DEI work, but for opposite reasons. One camp feels like their child is being actively ostracized. The other feels like not enough is being done to support their kids. Everyone is in search of a sense of belonging. Everyone just wants their kids to succeed. I will say that we, we really have put schools in a very unfair position in that um, we're trying to funnel so much of what our society should be doing through schools. So like you're talking about the DEIB stuff right now and like the tension that people have around that and people wanting to abandon public schools, but they're also abandoning them because of what's been going on through the pandemic. Um, they're also abandoning them based on what's been going on with like mass shootings in schools. So this is actually an incredibly difficult time <laughs> to be a teacher, um, to be an educator, to be an administrator. I, I have um, so much compassion in my heart for, for what it means to be trying to, to lead an educational institution right now and in the circumstances that our culture is in. I think that we're putting way, way, way too much on educators and then the weight becomes... You know, so then when, a, when an educator is like, I don't know how I'm going to have time to do the DEIB work well and be able to have all these like tense conversations with the families and our network, I don't fault them for saying that. I think that's a, that's a very reasonable fear. And so what can happen is that school leaders who are well-intentioned but totally overwhelmed launch equity initiatives that are set up to fail. Most organizations are kind of in this place where it's like it's somebody's passion project. And so what that means is then when that person leaves, the passion project leaves. And what does that mean for the organization who holds the work at that point? And one of the things like a, a lot of organizations fall into that place. But what what often also happens is that person who's making it their passion project is usually a person of color who's not being paid well. Um, so now they're also taking on in, in addition to whatever they're paid to do. Um, now they're taking on the emotional labor of facilitating a DEI process. That's really tough. And it's very, very tough to do, especially if you're doing it bottom up and you don't have the power in the organization to institute any of the changes that, that people are recommending to you. So it, it's, it's, it's actually like, a you know, systems like that are set up to fail. And then we often then after that blame DEI and say, well, you know, DEI wasn't, 
DEI is not successful. It'll actually not help your business. You actually can't change anything with DEI. Look at us. We tried all these things and it didn't work. Well, you tried a bunch of things without a system, without resources, without a thought plan about how you wanted the work to unveil itself over time. Um, and so like, we're really convinced that the reason a lot of DEIB work does not succeed is because really, um, you know, these leaders of colors within, within organizations are just sabotaged in that way uh, by being given DEI as though it's some kind of passion project, as though it's not something that the whole organization needs to be engaged in, in a really systemic way. Yeah, 100%. And with schools, when you talk about the whole organization being involved in a systemic way, Schools are not just teachers and administrators. Schools are also made up of students and parents. The community school really is a, a local school being a hub for really the collaboration of students, families, teachers, and community members at large working together for a common good. It's about improving attendance, about creating opportunities for, for positive behavior, about cultivating relationships for, for students and families. It's also about creating an ecosystem where everyone's contributing for the greater good of the whole. So what makes a community school, a community school is a, a coordinator creating a, a, an environment where people are willing to work together. And so what does that look like? It means perhaps uh, monthly gatherings to talk about homework cafe. It may be creating after school programs that really um, promote wellness of children. It may be about food pantries that support really the evolution in, in the means of family. It may be about creating after-school programs and, and tutoring that really improve student access. But what my point is, it's a, it's a coordinator bringing people together about the things that are most important to that school, that community. I'll give you as an example. When we launched the community school strategy in Miami at a high school, it really was about getting people to talk about how do we improve high school graduation. But at the same time, talking about high school graduation is, what are they gonna do after high school? So we, we, we brought in the universities, we brought in workforce development, but at the same time, we brought in opportunities for the parents. So we really created a two generation approach. So you're helping students, but you're also helping families to find working jobs in their community too. And so for a lot of them, they haven't been exposed to opportunities beyond their current circumstance. And so all we did was put a, put a coordinator in the building and get people talking about things that matter. DEI work is important for everyone, but some folks, particularly those in positions of privilege, may be resistant to it. And not just because they're worried they'll have some of their resources or opportunities taken away. Some may actually fear they'll be cast as the enemy when they desperately want to help. So as much as we're talking about the idea that um, education is, has really been designed to help acclimate folks to an inequitable system, at the end of the day with our team, like there's no blame, there's no shame, no guilt. You know, we're not mad at white people. This is just happens to be the system that we were all born into. Um, for us, it's about lifting the veil so that people have some awareness of what's going on and starting to realize that this is as bad for white students as it is for any other student, right? It's not good for white kids to be put in a position of privilege because that also separates them from being in community and connected with the other kids in their classroom and the other kids in the community that is, you know, their city, their town, our nation, right? Um, and it's also, I mean, I I'm not a huge fan of talking about the business case for racial equity. Like, why is it financially um, a good idea to care about racial equity? Because you should care about it for other reasons. But I will also say, if you want your kid to be employable, having a kid who is not comfortable 
um, taking leadership from other from folks who do not look like them is actually, you know, makes them less marketable on the job market, right? You want a child who's who knows how to really well interact with with people who are from different racial and ethnic backgrounds from them, different gender and sexual orientations. It's not to their benefit for us to be maintaining the system that we maintain. And so some of how, you know, kind of helping schools and parents to see that, I, I find helps to diffuse a lot of the concerns that white parents have that their children will be left behind in this. I think once they understand that this work is not about, it's not about revenge, right? It's about collective liberation. It's about all of us getting free and, and um, building a society that actually works for all of us. Because people all dignity. How do we create the environment for people to have dignity well-being in their evolution. You have kids coming to a school where they feel safe, they feel like connected, they feel like their voice matters. We have teachers that, that care more because the teachers aren't the only ones contributing because they have partners that are helping the teachers be more successful. When you have parents involved and parents recognizing that, hey, school's a place where my kids go to, but schools are a place where I can learn how to become a better parent, how I can become more active, but also how I can contribute. You have principals that, that but really understand, hey, I have to manage relationship and I have to look, you know, check on and manage my building. With the community school strategy, no one has to do any of this on their own. Instead, they're able to operate within a support ecosystem centered on their local public school. When everyone in a neighborhood or district is unified and mobilized to promote student success, they also uplift each other but really what you want from a school and community school is you want people to be impact leaders in their community. For them to see themselves as, well, I can be the change. I can give some. Marsha had some advice for those who want to be the change in their school communities too. The Sum of Us by Heather McGee is a really amazing book that kind of net, like really takes through like what do white people lose and what have we lost as a country by investing in systemic racism? And, um, and, and she really takes it out of just the, like, uh, I think we talk a lot about the historical trauma, but she's really speaking to the, like, there are so many well social welfare programs that we could have instituted as a nation that have been sabotaged by racist ideology. Um, and I find that once people read that book and they can start to understand how we all lose when systemic racism is, is at play, um, it, it helps to kind of shift their, their view of the work. Um, and so I, you know, I think getting book clubs together around that book might be a useful thing if you're just looking at one like small step, um, just parents coming together and, and doing that, or even educators and administrators coming together around that, just so you can start to get your um, uh, vocabulary together around how you can explain that to white parents when you're talking about the importance of, of DEIB work. I think that might be, you know, one little place to start. Um, and then the other place to, you know, the second thing I always ask people to do is like, look around and see who's not there. Like look around in your classrooms, look around in your social groups, look around in your um, in your church and start to notice like what types of people don't aren't there and what types of voices do you never hear from? And then find ways to start to hear from those voices and bring that into your world. Um, and that let that, that just be an awareness of just how some of the, the the oppressions in our world have like just kept us apart from each other. Coming together is the essence of a community school. I'm really sad to report that we had some audio issues during our conversation with Donnie. 
So I'm going to try to paraphrase what he said next. If you want to start a community school, you can. The first step is just to convene people. Those people should be stakeholders from all different domains of the school ecosystem. Parents, students, teachers, admin, principals. They need to come together and then they need to start talking about A, what's important to them, B, what kinds of change they want to see in their school community, and C, what resources they have access to that could help them facilitate that change. If you'd like to learn more about this strategy, a good place to start is the Coalition for Community Schools website, www.communityschools.org. And if you'd like to learn more about Marsha's organization, um, we've got a website, davisquareconsulting.com. Um, we're also on LinkedIn. Uh, you could just search for, for Davis Square Consulting um, and feel free to just reach out on our on our contact page and, and send any messages. Um, I'd love to hear folks who heard us on this podcast, even if you're not thinking about engaging with us. Uh, but just feel free to, to kind of send a little, a little message or shout out just to let us know that you heard us here. Thank you for listening. It's an honor to be working towards better together with you. Bye.